From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What is it like to live in an assisted living facility during a pandemic? One woman describes her world getting smaller. And Ramadan is beginning. How is COVID-19 affecting Colorado's Muslim community? Then tents and hiking boots might help us enjoy the great outdoors, but making that gear can actually contribute to climate change. The vast majority of our climate impacts actually occur deep in the supply chain. It's processes like quickly heating thousands of gallons of water to dyeable to fabric that becomes your jacket or your sleeping bag. How outdoor recreation companies are banding together to reduce their carbon footprint. Also, two peaks in southwest Colorado, Boscoff and Fowler, are named for mountaineers who died in an avalanche. We share their story. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Older Americans have been at the center of the COVID-19 crisis. In Colorado, people over 70 years old account for about three-fourths of the fatalities. And there have been outbreaks at well over 100 elder care facilities in the state. Elaine Yaffe is 82 and lives in an assisted living facility. She's a former journalist and wrote an article recently for Slate. It's called, I Live in a Retirement Home, My World is Shrinking. Elaine, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for inviting me. You begin your article, which came out at the end of March, saying, quote, Last week, they locked the doors and sealed them with yellow tape, giving this residence for 100 old people the appearance of a crime scene. Then they posted the signs announcing that no one from the outside, not family, not friends, not vendors, not anyone could enter. What did those no visitors signs at your residence mean for you? Well, it was very startling and very sobering. Um, this place has really been transformed by this virus. Um, the, obviously, the people who run it are well aware of the fact that loneliness and isolation are hazards of being old. And so they've put together a very fairly elaborate program of ways to bring people together. And now they're in the process of dismantling all that and trying to keep everybody six feet apart. Um, so... It's made a big difference. There's been a real contraction here. And we should say we're not going to name the home that you live in for privacy's sake. But you say after the no visitors rule, there were more changes at your place. Paint a picture of what your life is like now compared to before. Well, before there were always lots of classes. There was a lot of there was a gym that was open. So there were fitness classes of all different kinds. Um, vendors came in to teach Tai Chi and Pilates and yoga, and there were um, kind of workshops in flower arranging and other kinds of things. There were many lectures. Um, Active Minds would send people and give lectures on everything from Afghanistan to um, one on Thursdays. We used to hear this wonderful music lecturer. Um, And all of that, and there were happy hours twice a week where you'd go and have a glass of wine and some snacks and everybody would sit around and talk. Everything was geared toward bringing people together and encouraging, you know, conversations. It was also the dining room was open, so people would go down for meals and sit around and talk to one another. Now, all that has, has ended, and now everything is on Zoom, which produces its own problems for many people. Wow. So even within your facility, your social life has moved online to Zoom. 
Um, yes. Have there been any outbreaks at your facility? No, there was one suspected case, and um, that caused a lot of consternation. Uh, uh, an announcement came blaring over the loudspeaker, ordering everybody in independent living back to their apartments. And so we all dutifully followed the instructions and returned to our apartments, where we were locked down literally for, um, well, it was supposed to have been two to three days and ended up being seven days until the test came back, which was negative. But during that time, we were not permitted literally to cross the threshold. I mean, we couldn't go down the hall to put the recycling in the bin. We were just really isolated from one another. Wow, and this was early on in the crisis. How worried are you about getting the virus? Actually, I'm not. And it's one of the things that has surprised me about the atmosphere here. I thought that there would be a kind of an undercurrent of panic, but there really isn't. People seem kind of resigned. And it occurred to me that maybe that's because when you're over 80, you have really come to terms with your own mortality, and you're aware that life is finite and it's going to end. And um, so people just aren't too concerned. There are three different divisions to this facility. There is independent living, which is kind of uh, like living in an apartment house where you rent an apartment and um, everyone has their own space. Um, Then there's assisted living where people need considerably more care. And then there's memory care for people who are quite severely impaired. And if getting the virus is not the thing that worries you most, what does worry you most in this pandemic? It's what's happening to my grandchildren. I'm really concerned. I have a granddaughter in college. I have a granddaughter in high school. And their education is being disrupted in a very profound way. Um, You know, there's a, a kind of world that happens when you're in college and when you're in high school. You have friends and you have connections and um, and all that's being stopped and their their education has gone completely online, which hmm. I just think is, is much less stimulating for them. Yeah, so really looking out for that younger generation. Governor Polis said earlier this week that while the state would open up slowly beginning Monday for younger folks, he told older Coloradans that they should plan for the month of May to be a lot like April because they're at such high risk. This is Russian roulette at that age, and we want to make sure that you are taking that responsibility seriously to keep yourself safe. And that does mean, in many ways, you know, putting off those extended family visits with your the grandkids and the family and the nieces and nephews and all those kinds of things that could put you at a great risk. And I know it's hard, but uh, I know you'd much rather have a whole lifetime with them than risk seeing them, you know, in this coming month and knowing that that uh, could lead to a shorter lifespan and less enjoyment, you know, of your of your golden years. Governor Polis there saying that older Coloradans being at such high risk may need to stay home for longer. It strikes me that older Americans, older Americans are talked about in this crisis, but not always asked how they feel. You're obviously at more risk, and officials say they want older people to stay home so that they're protected. Do you feel the state is protecting you? I feel this facility is trying very hard to protect me, but I was distressed because at some point when when the test came back negative, we were permitted to go outside for the first time. 
take walks and just get some fresh air. And for a while, our families were permitted to visit with us when we were outside. But then, most unfortunately, someone was seen hugging someone else. And so that privilege was taken away, which made me very, very sad and not completely not completely understanding, because, in fact, the, this facility is locked down. But because it takes so many people to keep a place like this functioning, um, many, many people come in every day, housekeepers, maintenance workers, kitchen staff, um, and, of course, all of the caregivers, of which there are a great many. So um, strangers do, in fact, come in. Now, all of them in fairness to the facility, have their temperature taken every morning, and they are questioned very carefully about where they've been and with whom. And um, one employee told me that he had to take his mother to an urgent care, so he couldn't come to work for a week. Um, they, you know, they supervise these employees very carefully, but it just didn't seem to me quite fair that um, we were being deprived of the company of our families, which is so very, very important to us, particularly when you're as old as we are. And when we scheduled this interview, you emailed that you appreciated the chance to be interviewed and that, quote, it's not often that older people are asked seriously about what they think of anything. And you said you feel like you've been treated like a child. Does this feel like an instance of that? And I wonder, is this something that you feel particularly in the case of coronavirus or more generally? I think particularly in the case of this virus, that that we are really not permitted to make any decisions for ourselves. And um, I keep thinking of friends of mine who, who live in Denver, if they want to go to King Supers and pick up a pint of um, Baskin-Robbins ice cream, they can do that. Um, but I really can't, even if I would like to. And so I think when you get this old, you fight very hard for your autonomy and your independence. And... In the case of us being deprived of our families, it was it almost felt as if we were, you know, teenagers who had violated the Saturday night curfew that um, somebody hugged somebody. And therefore, now we were all being penalized, which seemed unjust to me um, and unfair and unnecessary. Fighting for autonomy in addition to fighting for health. You wrote in Slate that you know everyone's world, not just seniors, has gotten smaller. How is it different for people mm-hmm. like you in homes who might be prone to outbreaks? I think of going to well, the grocery store, like you mentioned. Well, what's, I think, different, this is not a facility in which many residents are crowded into a room. I know there are places where there are two and three residents in one room and they share a bathroom. That's not how it is here. Um, In independent living, everyone has his or her own apartment. In assisted living, the same thing is true. There's no doubling up. So it's it's different here. But, of course, um, you know, the the reports of the the way the virus has been racing through places like this is like, you know, it makes you understand why the facility is imposing very, very severe limitations. I do understand that. Now, you've been in this world for 82, nearly 83 years. How do you measure this crisis compared to others you've lived through? Oh, of course, I didn't. I wasn't around for the 1918 flu. Um, so this seems really unique to me. 
because of the severity of the danger of contagion. I've never been in a situation where there seemed to be such a severe risk. And we really, those of us who live here, are very well aware of the fact that there are, we all cope with a number of medical issues and which make us particularly vulnerable to this particular virus. Many of us have lung deficiencies, which, of course, make us very vulnerable. But, um, but this really does feel, it feels surreal. It feels weird. Um, time seems to be oddly out of joint. I was having trouble when I was writing that article remembering exactly when they had closed locked all the doors. Um, days seem to don't have the same kind of structure or form. And um, so that's very disorienting, really. Yeah, time really moves in a surreal way. Elaine, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Elaine Yaffe is 82 and lives in an assisted living facility in Denver. She's a former journalist and wrote an article recently for Slate. It's called, I Live in a Retirement Home, My World is Shrinking. Like other faith leaders, Imam Muhammad Khalila with Downtown Denver Islamic Center has been sharing lectures and updates on Facebook. It's how he's keeping Muslims connected during the age of coronavirus. Ramadan is beginning and goes through late May. Normally, Muslims celebrate by praying and breaking their fast with shared meals at the mosque. That can't happen this year. Muhammad Khalila joins us to talk about how the holiday and his role as an imam has changed. It's part of our ongoing conversation about faith and COVID-19. Welcome. Hello. Hi, how are you? Doing well, thank you. As we mentioned, you're sharing videos on social media. How else has your role changed since the Islamic Center has closed? So, so my role as an imam and also as a religious and spiritual leader among the Muslim communities has changed to be virtual with, uh, with one of the challenges of for many faith communities, including Muslims, is the communal practices and the, the physical presence of the congregants at the same place is really important. This is why we're just like navigating how to increase our presence in the social media platforms and also along different spectrum and using Zoom and all of these things that actually that we are naturally not trained on. Um, so. Right now, we're increasing our presence in social media. We're increasing uh, the acts of kindness and uh, community services and food uh, services and all of that. So, so just like it's expanded a little bit now. And what sorts of things have you moved online? What sort of practices are you still doing online? So in Islam, it's hard to do practices or rituals online. So what we're trying to do instead is by bringing up different lectures, different reminders, different reflections, and helping people to navigate their faith and also helping people to practice their, their religion in their homes. Because what many practices in Islam are based in communal practices like Friday prayers, for example, the, the midday Friday sermon. Uh, but the rest of the prayer, the five daily prayers, people can pray on in their homes everywhere because for Muslims they can pray at any place as long as it's clean. Uh, 
so that's, that's one of the things that's actually pushing people to do, to be self-motivated and to practice their faith, uh, faith in their own. Now, some people who attend services at the mosque are immigrants and may not speak a lot of English. Talk about the challenge yeah. of keeping those folks connected when they may already feel isolated. Here comes the challenge because you need to make sure that people are connected. And when you apply technology here, people are excluded because some people are not very literate in technology. And there are people coming from different backgrounds and different diversity. This is why, as Muslim communities, we are trying to work in different bases, like creating, for example, WhatsApp groups, um, trying as much as we can to to people to use different like Zoom meetings or Facebook or YouTube or website, going to the website and also connecting to people by phones. And that's one of the things that we found really effective, especially with recent refugees or recent immigrants or elders or people who speak different languages other than English. Um, with the Muslim community is one of the most diverse communities in the U.S. with people who speak in like dozens of languages. Um, uh, and that's that's one of the things that's actually we're doing now. We are not doing everything we want to do, but we're doing as much as we can to keep the people kind of connected in some way to their uh, local mosques and local organizations, Muslim organizations. Tell me also about how Ramadan will be impacted this year. Yeah, Ramadan starts tomorrow, actually, and uh, the 24th of April, uh, because Ramadan depends on the moon sighting of the month. And uh, we found out that it's going to start tomorrow. So Ramadan is impacted because Ramadan is one of the most times in the year that people come to come together, to break their fast together, to come to pray at the mosque. Even whenever you see like any Islamic literature, it's, a, it's based or centered around the community sense of Ramadan or how Ramadan is surfacing the community presence among the Muslim community. And that's one of the things that actually we found very, very challenging. That's why we, we launched every day, uh, right before breakfast, the community discussion about Ramadan with a certain theme. One theme of them is reviving our own hearts. Another theme is knowing our own Quran, the holy book for Muslims. And the, the third theme is how to we know the life or the autobiography of the Prophet Muhammad and how can we see how he went through struggles and how can we reflect in that in our current situation and what's happening right now. And we're trying as much as we can to push everyone to work from their own. And that's not very hard in, in terms of theology or Islamic theology because Islam is a very individualistic religion that it focuses so much in the relationship between the human being and the divine. Um, that's one of the things that actually we're pushing so hard for the people to realize that it depends on our relationship to God. It depends on how much efforts we're exerting. It depends on how much uh, sincerity we are putting in that and how much compassion we're putting in our actions and connection with God. Now, Ramadan is also a time when hundreds of people would come together, donate to the mosque, mm-hmm. and offer community support. That can't happen now either. How are you dealing with that? So how are we dealing with that? It's just like launching campaigns online to help the mosque because that's one of the things that are actually very, very uh, challenging for us because we used to have weekly sermons and people donate and that helps us a lot. And we, as a community, we're struggling in general because of 
of many people are actually like not in that uh, middle class or upper middle class. So just like going for the online option, creating Venmo accounts or cash apps or or launch goods or GoFundMe campaigns and and PayPal and all of these things. Now, I want to bring in Iman Judah. She's a spokeswoman for the Colorado Muslim Society. She also works with Colorado's Interfaith Alliance. She says she was raised in a traditional Muslim practicing home, and she thinks everything happens for a reason, including COVID-19. God has a plan for everything. There's no accidental chaos in the world. Everything is planned, and it's God's plan. So God knew this was going to happen. He made this happen. Why this is happening, I don't know. But I do know that I think it will reveal itself in time, and we have to trust his process. What do you think of this pandemic? Are you drawing theological connections between the Quran and what's happening in life now? Yeah, so in Islam, life is not a rosy time for Muslims or for human beings. That's how Islam sees it. Life is a time, is a temporary time that we go through for a longer life after death. So, and also the Quran describes life as a challenging time that's full of trials, full of testing, full of strength in the faith, full of also like different things in our life. And God works in a mysterious way. So when what Iman said now, it's a, it's a very deep in the Islamic theology that how can we understand the plan of God by making meanings out of this. Um, that can be, as the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said before, pandemics or plagues can be a mercy to some people. Um, so that can be a mercy to some people. That can be a challenge in time or can be a warning from God for something that's not going right in our lives. That can be strengthen our faith because these trials strengthen the person and bring us closer to God. Or we, we might be in a state of what's called in Arabic ghafla or loss or mindlessness. That might be one of that situations to bring up the awareness in our life and our place in life and our connection to God. Uh, so that can be mu- multiple things. It's not mm-hmm. me who knows exactly what's happening or why is it happening. It's all about God and we trust Him in that sense. We trust, we have the concept in Islam says, Alhamdulillah which means all praise to God forever he brings. We have to wrap up here. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Imam Muhammad Khalila of Downtown Denver Islamic Center. He spoke with us as Ramadan begins. It's part of our series about faith and coronavirus. Previously, we heard from Pastor Caitlin Trussell of Augustana Lutheran Church in Denver and Rabbi Bertie Becker of Temple Emmanuel in Pueblo. After the break, outdoor recreation companies trying to do a better job taking care of nature. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Lauren from Denver. I choose to support CPR because NPR is my primary source of news, and I've come to highly value their unbiased, thoughtful reporting. I depend on podcasts like Up First to keep me informed and to broaden my perspective. I'm currently living abroad right now, and having a trusted news source that keeps me informed about what's happening has been more important to me than ever. And it's also been a comfort to be connected in solidarity with other Americans during this global crisis through NPR. Thank you, CPR, for all you do. Open the windows and turn up the Ode to Joy this afternoon at 5 on CPR Classical. 
honor our medical workers and first responders with listeners all across Colorado in Beethoven's epic triumph of the human spirit. Turn up and share the Ode to Joy this afternoon at 5 only on CPR Classical. More at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Wednesday was Earth Day, and for a coalition of outdoor industry companies called the Climate Action Corps, it marked the beginning of an effort to lower their carbon footprint. They want the tents, sleeping bags, hiking boots, and gear that let people get outside to help combat climate change, not contribute to it. Amy Horton is Senior Director of Sustainable Innovation at the Outdoor Industry Association, which is leading the Climate Action Corps. Hi, Amy. Thank you. It's great to be here. Local businesses such as Steamboat Springs-based Big Agnes have joined the Corps. Bill Gamber is the co-owner and founder. Bill, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's also attracted national retailers, including REI. Matt Thurston is REI's Director of Sustainability. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. When the Corps was announced, Eric Arts, CEO of REI, gave a keynote speech and said, we're not choosing to focus our efforts and resources on climate because it's fashionable. We're doing it because we're scared. Scared that our outdoor playgrounds may face the threat of extinction if we don't act in meaningful ways. Matt, can you reflect on that fear for us? Yeah, at REI, we're an 82-year-old organization. And we look at the next 82 years, climate change is beyond doubt the gravest threat facing the future of of that life outdoors and the most important issue for us to go and tackle on behalf of our members. Bill, you've lived off the power grid for 25 years now, and your company has also made strides toward more sustainable practices. Do you and your employees also feel this sense of fear? Yeah, definitely. We live in a ski town, so um, just the overall impact, warmer temperatures and less consistent snow impacts our local community. Um, As far as with the entire outdoor industry, you know, a company like ours is only 20 years old, and we've seen the change, you know, within that amount of time. And Amy, is this a fear that you're also thinking about? Yeah, I mean, climate change is a risk for all businesses, right? But the outdoor industry is uniquely at risk because the outdoor experience is under threat. And I think we we know this firsthand in Colorado from, you know, summers of intense wildfires leading to park closures and um, reduced camping seasons and unpredictable snowpack, dangerous skiing conditions. All of those impacts keep people from going outside. And that kind of unpredictability is also bad for business. So Yeah, we are fearful of it. It is existential for individual companies and for the industry at large. When I think about more sustainable practices, I think about reducing the use of plastic packaging, using more recycled materials. Matt, what other practices is REI looking at to meet its goals? When you think of a national retail operation like REI, you might think that our largest impacts on the climate stem from things like operating 162 stores, or the commuting of over 14,000 employees, or from our logistics network to bring you products. But the reality is that the vast majority of our climate impacts actually occur deep in the supply chain. It's processes like quickly heating thousands of gallons of water to dyeable to fabric that becomes your jacket or your sleeping bag. It's the embedded energy uh, from the mining of aluminum that becomes your tent poles or your bicycle frame. So For a U.S.-based outdoor company to make an impact in those tangential segments of the supply chain, 
we move, need to move together with partners who collectively can create demand for more sustainable manufacturing practices. And that's what an initiative like the OIA Climate Action Corps helps bring um, and helps unlock for hundreds of companies in our industry. So I know I'm thinking of the outdoor gear I have. I have a hammock that's bright orange, a jacket that's bright purple, and even a lot of my gear is brightly colored. So even that is not necessarily environmentally sustainable. That's correct. I mean, fabric comes in, in the color that, that we call grayish, which is undyed, right? So to bring you um, vibrant or, or even some of the more muted colors, it needs to go through a very chemically intensive, water intensive, and energy intensive set of processes. About 90% of our total impact on the climate actually occurs in the supply chain, which is largely out of sight for, for our customers and very challenging for an organization like us to go and, and tackle. And, and that's why we need these types of collaborative tools. Now, Big Agnes is a much smaller company than REI, but it has worked on sustainability initiatives such as the Reroute Collection that was launched in 2008. Those products were made with recycled fabrics, fills, and hardware. What will Big Agnes's involvement in the Climate Corps do for those initiatives? Well, I think as you know, one of the smaller companies, we one benefit from everybody in the outdoor industry coming together. But we also, things that we've learned and maybe implement on a smaller scale can help some of the bigger organizations um, after we sort of test it. Uh, We're working on a brand new tent series for next year that has a solution dyed fabric, which means that we actually eliminate all of the dyeing process and will save actually millions of gallons of water through this new collection that we're introducing. The aim of the Climate Action Corps is to achieve industry-wide greenhouse gas emission reductions. Amy, how will the Corps achieve that? Our North Star is really an outdoor industry that is climate positive by, by 2050. That's when science says we need to be at net zero greenhouse gas emissions globally. Um, 2050 is a long way away. I hope we can get there before that. Um, and the next decade is really critical, right? Um, between now and 2030, um, Science also says that we need to reduce our emissions 45% as an economy. And so we're looking at that and saying, how does the outdoor industry get on that path? And to put us on that track, by the end of 2021, our goal is that all members of the Climate Action Corps, which we aim to represent most of the outdoor industry, all members have measured their entire carbon footprint. That's all parts of the footprint back to the supply chain has set a target that is ambitious and in line with science to reduce those emissions and is actively driving activities that will help achieve those reductions through things like energy efficiency and renewables, lower carbon materials, um, innovative processes like the one that Bill described, the solution dying at Big Agnes. And all of that said, the, the real requirement, the outcome is that companies share their progress publicly each year that we use transparency to drive accountability, that the outdoor industry ultimately has uh, kind of its own collective carbon footprint and a target that we're striving to reduce as an industry. So when you say climate positive, that means going beyond net zero emissions and actually removing greenhouse gases from the environment. So people are really helping the outdoors rather than hurting them by being involved. Right. Amy, what are some of the strategies companies may use to reduce their emissions? Yeah, we're really focused right now on kind of three or maybe four key areas. So energy efficiency. 
um, is one of the ways in which companies can reduce their emissions. And that can be, you know, you might start by focusing at home on your owned and operated facilities, your distribution centers, your stores. But as Matt said, that's really a small part of any company's footprint. The idea is to um, then work in your supply chain with the factories that are making your product, like Big Agnes described. Um, but there's also renewable energy. We would like to drive as hard and as fast as we can to have outdoor industry companies procure renewable energy in the U.S. by the end of 2020 and into 2021. And the next step is then how do we work with our factories to implement renewables through on-site solar, through wind power in countries like Vietnam and China and Taiwan. Another strategy is through um, lower carbon materials, using recycled content. And then there is a really big opportunity looking at what we call circular business models. So how do we figure out how to grow without necessarily making new? That could be done through things like repair or re-commerce, selling things again and again, renting them, extending the life of products, which is really aligned with the outdoor industry's values. We make durable products already. Let's get the most use out of those products that we can. So those are some of the strategies that we hope to drive. Now, you also talked about accountability. Are there specific standards that people are agreeing to be held accountable to? To join the Climate Action Corps, you really just need to commit to share your progress publicly, right? It's about progress over perfection. And I think that sharing, that transparency, that's really what sets this initiative, the Climate Action Corps, apart from some of the other packs and pledges and promises out there that you can, you know, sign on to your CEO signs or you can put a logo on and then you kind of walk away. We really want to encourage progress each year and we want to make that public. Um, in terms of specific standards, we are creating part of what we're doing is creating a guidebook that will help companies like Big Agnes, um, some of the smaller to mid-sized companies who maybe haven't measured their footprint yet, to take this on and to get it done. Because the standard for carbon measurement today, the greenhouse gas protocol, is it's thousands of pages. It is an encyclopedia. We're trying to simplify and demystify and make it easier for companies in our industry who might not have a ton of resources to take this on. Matt, REI has long had sustainability initiatives and deeper pockets than smaller companies to invest in sustainability. So what's in it for REI to join the core? It may help to remember that while outdoor retailers like REI sell many of the global and national brands we all know, we also sell thousands of small to medium-sized brands. Those brands want to contribute to the solutions we want to work with brands who are leading with their values around issues that are important to the outdoors. But it's really hard when you have a company of, say, 30 people and your business might be fluctuating wildly from season to season, especially as things like the winter ski season becomes more unpredictable. How do you find stable, long-term partners that understand your operating reality and welcome you into a collaborative group of like-minded peers? The OIA Climate Action Corps provides that forum. And that's part of why REI really finds value in this initiative. And so it could give you a lot more information about your supply chain, I imagine. Absolutely. You know, our, you asked about how do customers parse um, the complicated uh, supply chains and, and really understand the environmental impacts of the products that they're purchasing. And, and the reality is that it's complicated. And, and what happens when you know that uh, one product uses more energy and has a higher greenhouse gas footprint and another one might use more water but less energy? And 
what we're really trying to do at REI is help do a lot of that work on our end when we're going and we're working with brands like Big Agnes to choose what products we're bringing into market. And this gives us a common language, a common platform for doing that measuring, for having that information transparently available. And if we're doing our jobs right, what we can do is we can use the collective purchasing power of REI's 18 million members to create demand for more sustainable products. And that helps brands go and and advance these solutions in the supply chain, knowing that there's a market demand for them. Some companies have shied away from sustainable practices because it can drive up costs and turn into prices for consumers. Bill, how do you weigh that? Uh, yeah, we that's, we've had that conversation internally quite quite often, and we've just flat out made the decision that if it costs us more, then that's that's okay, and we we build that into um, how we run the business and maybe try to save money in other places. But it's no longer an issue that sort of you can punt down the the next few years. And when we launched reroute in 2008. It was all around sort of a specific tent that we made that was all recycled materials and everything. And it cost more, and consumers didn't really put their money behind it. And it was a great project for us to learn and understand where we can do things that really make an impact and maybe some that don't. And so what came out of that whole project ended up being highly recycled content um, insulations for some of our sleeping bags, different things that we made a real impact and also actually didn't affect higher costs or actual efficiency with the product. We want to make sure all of our product performs the absolute best possible way, but also is affordable and people buy it. Bill, Amy, Matt, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Bill Gamber is the co-owner and founder of Big Agnes, a Steamboat Springs-based company that makes outdoor recreation gear. Matt Thurston is REI's Director of Sustainability. Both companies are part of the Climate Action Corps, an initiative led by the Outdoor Industry Association. Amy Horton is the association's Senior Director of Sustainable Innovations. Work officially began on this week for more than 60 companies that are part of the Corps to measure and reduce their carbon footprint. When we come back, the story behind Boscoff and Fowler Peaks in southwest Colorado. Mountaineer Christine Boscoff climbed more of the world's tallest peaks than any other American woman, a record that still stands. A lot of people, you know, they look at me and they, they're like, you're crazy, I would never go up there, you know, it's dangerous. The physical and mental challenge of the sport, of of trying to push yourself as far as you can go to achieve the summit. But in 2006, Boscoff and her climbing partner, who lived together in southwestern Colorado, disappeared while climbing a remote peak in China. Edge of the Map, The Mountain Life of Christine Boscoff, is a new book by Denver author Joanna Garten. Joanna, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Chris Boscoff climbed the 12th highest peak in the world in 1995. The 26,000-foot broad peak straddles the border of Pakistan and China. What did this accomplishment do for her reputation as a mountaineer? Great question. She, at that point, was relatively new to the sport, and she was climbing with her husband, Keith, who was a dozen or more old years older than her. 
And she summited Broad Peak, but it was challenging. She gained quite a bit of knowledge about the power of big peaks, about weather patterns and decision-making. She and Keith had tried to summit two times and had failed. And on their third attempt, Keith decided to stay back at base camp, and Chris went ahead. She climbed with Scott Fisher, who at that point was the owner of Seattle guiding company Mountain Madness, Scott would later die on Mount Everest in 1996, and I think that's probably an event a lot of your listeners remember because it was chronicled in Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. So at that point, Mm. she and Scott went up and summited Broad Peak, uh, and she did it by herself without her husband, who had been her mentor. So at that point, it was a real awakening for her and, and really saw her trajectory going upward in the sport. But it wasn't all good news. She was there, like you said, with her husband, Keith Boscoff, and he didn't fare so well on the climb. What happened? That's right, yes. As I mentioned, they had tried to summit two times prior to her successful summit, and those two attempts were difficult. They faced wind and snow and were turned back, and they were still relatively green uh, in the sport, in particular Chris. So, On that third attempt, Keith stayed back at base camp. His eyesight had really begun to fail, which happens oftentimes at high altitude. So he stayed back. She went on ahead, which was a real turning point professionally for her, but also in their marriage as well, because she was really on the rise and he was a bit stagnant, you know, being at least a dozen years older than her. Now, Chris thought of herself as a climber, not a female climber. What did women have to deal with in the elite climbing and mountaineering scene at that time? Yes, that's right. That's right. At that point, this was the mid-90s, there were very few American women who she could look look up to in the sport. There was a British woman. There was an incredible Canadian high-altitude mountaineer and a Polish woman also who had died a few years prior. But she didn't have many women she could look to locally, American women. So nonetheless, she got very hooked on the sport, and there were a handful of accomplished rock climbers who I think she did look up to, but um, it was challenging. There were very few high-altitude mountaineers who were female at that time. So she always focused more on who she was as an individual and really tried to downplay the fact that she was a woman. I think she found the hype about the fact that she was a woman doing these incredible things a little bit silly uh, and really did try to downplay her gender when it came to her sports. And what was different about Chris that she was able to climb with most male climbers when they turned down other women? Well, that's a good question. I think um, she was incredibly humble and very, um, very relatable. She had simply found something she loved to do. And as I said, she found it very silly that there was such a fuss about the fact that she was a woman in this sport that was dominated by men. She wasn't particularly comfortable bragging or speaking in front of crowds. I think if she were alive today, she'd be probably mortified at kind of having to chronicle all her achievements on social media. So she was very approachable, always very understated, a great sense of humor. And I think that was... um, an attractive quality that drew many people to her, not just as a climber, but as a person as well. Now, Chris and her husband, Keith Boscoff, they bought Mountain Madness, that Seattle-based guiding company that Scott Fisher had co-founded. But Keith died not long after. 
Chris kept that guiding business, which took people up some of the world's most difficult mountains, and she kept climbing. In fact, she summited the world's highest peak, Mount Everest. Then she met Colorado... Colorado and Charlie Fowler, who lived in Norwood, Colorado. They became partners in climbing and in life. Tell us a little bit about Charlie. Charlie. Oh, Charlie Fowler. He was he was quite a character. He was, I guess, what we would call a quintessential dirtbag. He kind of came of age in the 70s and 80s in Boulder and then Telluride, making a name for himself and accomplishing first ascents of climbs all over Colorado. He was totally transparent about who he was and what he wanted in life. He loved climbing, but he was also a really gifted photographer. He was an avid reader and a brother and a great friend, and uh, people just loved to be around him. They were really drawn to him. Um, But as I said, he really did live to climb and did odd jobs to make ends meet, carpentry, writing, depended on the kindness of others, I guess you'd say, and really lived an incredibly frugal life as he made this name for himself in the world of rock climbing. Climber's climber. Uh, By 2006, Chris had climbed six of the world's 14 8,000-meter peaks, the biggest mountains on the planet, and she and Charlie had fantastic climbing adventures around the world. But Rescuers in China's Sichuan province have said that they have located the body of one of two American mountain climbers. Chris and Charlie, they disappeared in western China. What peak were they climbing and why did they choose that part of the world? Yes, great question. So as Chris and Charlie uh, aged, they became more interested in unexplored places. They were not as interested in large-scale expeditions, and they preferred to go to places that were very much off the grid. And western Sichuan province in China was one area that they had been several times, and so they were back again in western Sichuan, and they had a number of different mountains that they had targeted over about a one-month period. Uh, And the last mountain that they were planning to summit uh, was called Genyan, Genyan Peak. You visited the monastery at the base of that mountain and hiked to the area where they died. Describe the place where they spent their last days. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's so hard to describe. And I think I wrote about it a little bit in the book and described it almost like stepping into the pages of a fairy tale. It's this just spectacular area in western Sichuan province. Um, The Genyan Valley is just an area where there are peaks really surrounding you on all sides, rising to 19,000, 20,000 feet. They are rugged mountains, but just massive in scope. And it's just an area that's very unexplored. So very few Westerners traveled there then and, and now as well. So it's very much untouched and peaceful, almost magical. So really breathtaking beauty. And um, this monastery is just Um, unbelievably beautiful Tibetan Buddhist monks living really as simply as any humans can. And with all this beauty and this remoteness, it sounds like you're still describing a place where not a lot of people are going to climb these mountains. These aren't the ones that are on everybody's list. Right, right. Both then and now, you know, the peak that they were uh, targeting was Genyan and it was 20 is 20,000 feet. So At the base of the mountain, it's about 16,000 feet. So it's just not, 
it's not an area that's easy to get to for Westerners. So it's just very, very hard to get to. And um, that made the search and um, rescue very difficult. So tell us what happened to Chris and Charlie. So Chris and Charlie had been bouncing around this part of China, as I mentioned, and they had left some details on the fact that they were heading to Ganyan, but definitely not prolific details by any means. And so it took some time once friends and family realized that they had gone missing uh, to uncover those details of where they were going. So that was challenging. And then once the search and rescue was activated, the terrain in that area um, was, as I said, very rugged and very much off the grid. So initiating a search and rescue operation at 16,000 feet was a challenge. And, you know, in addition, there were a number of different efforts. There was an effort based in Telluride, an effort based in Seattle. And then obviously they had some coordination to do with officials in China. So it really did require a high level of coordination and translators and people with expertise in that area. Dealing with the politics of China was not easy. And on top of all of that, it was Christmas. So it was it was tricky. So this huge effort by friends to bring them to find them and Chris and Charlie's friends care for them so much that they even did the arduous work of getting two peaks in southwestern Colorado named after them. What did the deaths of these two people mean to the climbing community? Well, that's a that's a great question too. It was it was overwhelming. Uh, it really, I would say, shattered both of the communities, the communities of Telluride Norwood, as well as the community in Seattle, because both of them individually were really beloved, and as a couple, they were really at the top of their sport. So, it was interesting as I researched the story of Chris and Charlie and talked to their friends. I talked to many people who said to me, oh, I really had wanted this story to be told for so long. And there were many people who wanted to tell it, but it was just very painful. So um, their legacy. I will have to wrap there. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Denver author Joanna Garten's new book is Edge of the Map, The Mountain Life of Chris Boscoff. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avery Lill, and you're listening to CPR News.